This is the Monday, October 3rd, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. We have a familiar passenger in the passenger seat of our time machine this week. It's Dr. Paul Cahan. We last caught up with Paul to chat about his book, The Bank War, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and the fight for American finance. You can catch that interview at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. And you might want to enjoy the video we produced, illuminating some of the political and journalistic changes occurring at the time of the bank war. You can watch that at facebook.com slash history author. Dr. Cahan holds a PhD in U.S. history from Temple University, an MA in modern American history and literature, and BAs in history and English. You can learn more about today's guest at paulcahan.com or by following him on Twitter at Paul underscore Cahan. That last name is K-A-H-A-N. Paul is joining us this time to talk about his latest book, Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. From abject poverty to undisputed political boss of Pennsylvania, no easy feat in the notoriously fractious Keystone State, Simon Cameron served as senator and ultimately head of the War Department as the nation tore itself apart over slavery. In that context, Amiable Scoundrel lets us understand a deeper portrait of the Civil War through a compelling figure at the top of the Lincoln administration. And I have to say, I listed all Paul's degrees, but he's a man that really brings history alive. This is never academic writing, although academics will enjoy it. Okay, now that the old Wayback Machine has touched down in the beginning of about the Jacksonian era, let's step on out with Paul Cahan and meet Simon Cameron, amiable scoundrel. I'm joined on the line by Paul Cahan, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. Welcome back to the History Author Show. Oh, thank you very much for I having me. I love the bank war. I love your excitement and passion for history. I think that people who are learning from you are very fortunate to have someone who really brings that sense of knowledge of a person, but also familiarity here. With Simon Cameron, you can tell you're looking at him through the eyes of a Pennsylvanian. The Keystone State is just that in early America. It's a keystone. It's right there holding everything together when you look at the early map of America, yet it sits there and watches its fellow original colony of Virginia rack up president after president after president after president, 
Pennsylvania only manages to get a contemporary of Simon Cameron, James Buchanan, to the White House at basically the worst possible time with the whole country splitting apart over the issue of slavery and its expansion. So with those eyes of a Pennsylvanian, how does this amiable scoundrel enjoy such a long, successful career as a political boss in a state that's such a disunited state with so many different political factions? You know, that's a really great question. And I think it's a great idea to ground our understanding of Cameron in the state of Pennsylvania, because while he's a guy that has national political prominence, you know, he's a senator at three different times. He's intimately involved in the Lincoln administration. He plays a big role in getting Lincoln reelected in 1864. His political prominence has everything to do with the fact that he had a very strong political machine operating on the state level. And I think it's one of the themes of the book is that political authority in this era, political power, really arose out of the ability to command, if not the entire state's political apparatus, at least a strong faction of it. And as you know, Pennsylvania only ever elected one president, James Buchanan. But on the other hand, Pennsylvania is a kingmaker. You can't make it to the White House without getting Pennsylvania's electoral votes. It has the second highest number in the 19th century. And so the man who controls Pennsylvania's electoral votes, the man who controls Pennsylvania, is going to be a national player. And that's really Simon Cameron's claim to fame in a lot of and ways. And he's also somebody, therefore, that is going to make enemies. And those people, we see it today in the comment section on any political person you want to look at her on Facebook or, you know, if you get defeated by somebody, you don't just go away in this era any more than you do today. You're going to keep kind of sniping at the guy. I thought maybe that accounted for why he didn't have the greatest reputation. Is that part of the reason? Oh, no doubt. You know, I think one of the things, you know, we live in an era of increasing technological interdependence where, you know, there's really been a democratization of information flows. Anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can have a YouTube channel. The barriers to entry have dropped dramatically. And in a lot of ways, this is very similar to what happens in the 19th century with the emergence of cheap wood pulp paper, the expansion of cheap newspapers and cheap books. You get the partisanization of the media in a way that we hadn't seen really in the 18th century. I mean, it really goes into overdrive. And that's the secret of Cameron's political emergence. He starts out as an apprentice for a printer. He very quickly becomes caught up in the political factionalization of the Pennsylvania Democratic-Republican Party, demonstrates his usefulness as a newspaper editor for one of those factions, and is launched on a political career as the mouthpiece for one of the governors of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I think, you know, that's exactly the case. You're living in an era of hyperpartisan, overpressurized, vitriolic political campaigns that for most people living today, we haven't seen in our lifetimes. You know, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton gives you a taste of it, but Andrew Jackson claimed that John Quincy Adams had procured women for the Tsar of Russia. The Adams people responded that Jackson was a bigamist. It got very, very ugly. And on the local level, on the state level, things got even more out of control. And as a result, guys like Cameron not only made opponents, they made enemies, lifelong to the bone types of feuds that over a lifetime just didn't go away. They just kept reappearing. In Andrew Jackson's case, literally to the bone. 
getting shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, that's a great callback to the bank war because, of course, while that's going on, Jackson's having a ball removed from his shoulder (laughs) that he had carried around from a duel. And, you know, Cameron's involved in all kinds of altercations. I mean, at one point, and this isn't in the book, he gets into a fist fight on the floor of the Senate with Henry S. Foote, who, you know, would fight anyone anywhere. You know, it didn't help these guys were drinking. It didn't help that this Senate would be in session for long hours, 12, 15 hours in some cases, late in the night. humidity in Washington, D.C., and no women around either. Of the period, you think the men would at least behave themselves when women were around, but there's no women in the Senate or anywhere around it. So they're sort of a little free to let their animal side come out. Oh, and they do. And Joanne Freeman at Yale is working on a book right now about violence in Congress. And there's just an embarrassment of riches. These guys were always getting into fights. The incident that happened in 1849, Cameron was just ripping into the Senate about the tariff. And Henry S. Foote, who was just drunk off his board, I think the congressional reporter described him as arms akimbo and in ludicrous attitudes went over to Cameron and said, you know, you're, you weren't reelected, so why don't you shut up? And Cameron knocked him on his ass. I mean, he just flat out hit him in the face. And Henry S. Foote's friends had to sort of drag him out of the Senate chamber so Cameron could continue his speech. I mean, this was not uncommon. And later on, when the issues of slavery and secession had really heated up, Cameron and a bunch of his political allies actually formed a pact that they would come to one another's aid if a gun was pulled on the floor of the Senate or if one of them was, you know, involved in an altercation. So, you know, this was not. And these were younger men then, too, it occurs to me. There's a joke that it's the best retirement home in the world is in the U.S. Senate. But you look at anybody who's in their 90s or something and sort of being wheeled around literally often. And I mean, I can't imagine a a Robert Byrd or a Strom Thurmond whipping a piece out on the lanes for a little Big Lebowski and uh, (laughs) deciding to start trying to cap somebody. You know, these are young men with a lot of passions and they're really fighting for their states. And Cameron gets this reputation. It occurred to me reading Amiable Scoundrel in a way because Lincoln gets shot and he's sainted. That's it. Martyred. Nobody's going to criticize him. But you can kind of dump it on the Secretary of War because he's still alive and around. And honestly, a lot of these guys didn't like him anyway. So your book gives us a chance to do something I love in history. And that's go back and look at a person with fresh eyes and realize that the things we maybe absorb from a line here and there in a book about the great man, the main focus, Lincoln in this case, is not correct, is just passed on hearsay often. Ty Cobb was a great example of that. I have mentioned many times in my interview with Charles Learson of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, where these things were just outright lied about by scurrilous writers, the yellow press, people who just wanted to make a buck off him or had an axe to grind against him. So what were these beefs people had with Simon Cameron and what made you decide, hey, I'm going to write about this guy and give people the real picture? Well, let me do that backwards. So, you know, I think that you bring up a really great point. And it's funny because Doris Kearns Goodwin's magisterial team of rivals is a fantastic book. I mean, it's just a brilliant book. But she, unfortunately, repeats many of these sort of scurrilous rumors about Cameron sort of wholeheartedly. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that as a historian, when you're focused on the thing, if there are things that are sort of connected to the thing, but are not the thing, you have a tendency to rely on secondary sources rather than tracking down the papers yourself. 
And she was very clearly writing this large, sprawling history. And there was no way she was going to sit down and read the thousands of papers in the Simon Cameron collection. She had to rely on the two existing biographies neither of which are particularly good. The first one was published in 66. The one before that was published in 42. It only takes things up to Cameron becoming Secretary of War. So you have one and a half biographies, essentially. As a historian, I can certainly understand that, but you read these things over and over and over again, and there's a real disconnect because Simon Cameron gets painted as this incredibly corrupt, venial politician who was also a total boot, couldn't do the War Department. And I said, God, you know, there's got to be more to this guy than this. I mean, how did he become the unabashed leader of Pennsylvania politics? In later life, how did he become chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations? And yet he was a total incompetent boot. And what I found out was a lot of what happened grew out of partisanship, that a narrative emerged of corruption from Cameron's political enemies, and that each new allegation just sort of confirmed that. But if you begin scraping these things away, what you find is there's a lot of smoke, not a whole lot of fire. The allegations of corruption go back to an event that happened in 1838 when Cameron is picked to be appointed by Martin Van Buren to be a commissioner to adjudicate the claims of the Winnebago Native Americans under a treaty that the U.S. had signed with them. And this was very common. The government would sign a treaty with the Native Americans that had all kinds of provisions for paying their debts, giving them some money, relocating them, etc. And the government would send representatives to adjudicate those claims, by which they meant figure out who was entitled to benefits, figure out how much in benefits they're entitled to, and dispense them. Cameron and his co-commissioner read their mandate very, very broadly. And this became fodder for the partisan press. Cameron was a well-known Democratic political operative. He was 40 years old when this happened. He had been on the political scene for a while. And so when there was some controversy about it, and there were some allegations of corruption, these were immediately picked up by the opposition press, who dubbed Cameron the great Winnebago chieftain. And this epithet followed him throughout the rest of his life. You know, when he's in the Senate in the 1870s, his political opponents are still calling him the great Winnebago chieftain. The opposition press is still calling him the great Winnebago chieftain, you know, about this thing that had happened nearly 40 years before. And if you read the reports that were being sent back to the War Department and the conflicting testimony, there's almost no evidence that Cameron was involved in anything unsavory. But it emerged as a narrative, and then it became very difficult to break that narrative, even if the person complaining about his corruption had ulterior motives, as in every case. They it doesn't did. help him any either that Winnebago is so fun to say. I mean, it, it is, yeah. <laughs> literally is a very catchy thing. If he'd been some tribe that maybe was, you know, just the Blackfoot, something that wasn't quite so catchy, but it just sounds like something you can really sink your teeth into. And it sounds almost made up to the English ear. So it, mm -hmm. it was really just bad luck. And this happens. I mean, Teapot Dome, also a very sexy name. And unfortunately, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. got tarred with that. Eleanor Roosevelt, his first cousin, was able to follow him around in a little car with a teapot on top and have fake smoke coming out and you know ruined his chances of becoming governor of New York. So it's tough. Sometimes you see these guys in history roll really bad dice and when you see somebody overcome it the way Simon Cameron does in Amiable Scoundrel, 
that's inspiring because you do get to like the guy as you read the book and you are frustrated with it sometimes because you say not only is it like Ulysses S. Grant where his enemies are better writers than his friends and all those old Confederate soldiers had a lot of time to sit around and write bitter things down about the lost cause, but he doesn't keep a lot of notes, Cameron, which is probably pretty smart. I mean, we see this all the time that politicians don't want to leave a trail. They don't want to be subject to any kind of oversight. But Cameron is not only that, but he's also a disorganized guy. You're a historian. You're wanting things to be written down. I wanted to distill that down to one funny anecdote that you have in Amiable Scoundrel. And that's a guy calls on Cameron at the War Department. You can just picture him so frazzled when you hear this as Secretary of War during the Civil War the big ramp up here to fighting it. And he says to the guy, what did we talk about last time? So why don't you share that with listeners? Cause that's a pretty funny one. This guy says to him, well, you borrowed my pencil. You took a note, you stuck it in your pocket. You didn't give me my <laughs> pencil back. And then I never heard anything. And you know, that was very, very common to hear that. And Cameron's friends were saying this, Cameron's enemies were saying this. So it was not at all surprising. There's a great deal of credibility, I think, to those complaints. The Cameron was disorganized. And I think in, in a lot of ways, the skills that made him a very effective political operative, the skills that made him a very effective political organizer were not necessarily organization and the kinds of skills that would have made him an effective administrator. And so as a result, he was an extremely ineffective administrator. And that, I think, had a lot to do with these claims of corruption and whatnot. But that being said, you know, Congress investigated this up and down, and they found no direct evidence of Cameron's involvement in corruption. Bad decisions, bad delegation, but no actual instance where he enriched himself through his service in the War Department. And when Lincoln ends up throwing him out, he throws him out not because of corruption. He throws him out because Cameron has publicly contradicted administration policy by advocating for the enlistment of African-Americans. You mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin there. I wanted to hop back to that. If you're writing a book that's called Team of Rivals, or you're writing any book on Lincoln, you always want to set him apart. He's always the one who you're not going to read a lot of critical things on him, although they are out there. He was still a human being. So as I was reading Amiable Scoundrel, I thought it's like a play, right? When you have a play, there's always some bit parts. And when I watch them, I go to Broadway and I see them step off or dance off the stage. And I always think in the back of my head, okay, they're doing a costume change or what are they doing back there in between? <laughs> Just a little quirk of mine, I guess. I worked in a little bit in the theater, played in bands and everything. But I find when people look at a historical figure – they sometimes think, okay, that's a bit player. So, you know, Simon Cameron was just sitting around on his couch there in Pennsylvania, and then Lincoln calls him, and he's Secretary of War for a couple of years, and then he just goes away again. And, of course, that's not the case. I mean, he has an incredibly long life. What does he live to, 90, is it? Yeah. Yes, he does. He has a yeah. long life. He's not a guy that's just waiting. He's a real flesh-and-blood person. And so 
I, again, love that sort of thing. I love meeting somebody and saying, oh, yeah, I knew Lincoln and he was, I worked for him. But when I knew him, he was just a guy almost, you know, he wasn't, and I had frustrations with him and he was a little bit of a jerk to Cameron, you know, a couple of times, you know, so that's the kind of thing that I sank my teeth into. He works also in government. He knows a lot of presidents. Was it from Andrew Jackson to James Garfield? He meets all of those guys to some extent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, he dies in 1889, the year that Grover Cleveland is elected. And he he knew Grover Cleveland. He had served in Congress with many of these guys, or he just knew them because Pennsylvania was, again, a crucial state. So they would come through. So, yeah, he is born in the last year of George Washington's life. And he outlives James A. Garfield. He dies in the summer of 1889. So that's an incredibly broad life. And he, more than anyone else, masters his moment. And that's another, I think, theme of the book, the mastery of the moment. The coin of the realm for the Jacksonian period is the spoil system. And that gets picked up wholeheartedly when the Republicans emerge in the 1850s. Cameron retires in the late 1870s just as the idea of civil service reform is really picking up. And, you know, that Jacksonian period of the spoil system is finally coming more or less to a close. And that's why he gets out of government, because he realizes that he sort of outlived his era. But even still, he becomes sort of almost like the Jimmy Carter of his day, like, you know, this sage whose advice people still seek. And he's still invited to the White House. He's still invited to give advice to people, et cetera. So even in retirement, he is still an incredibly, incredibly important and sought after. You brought up Andrew Jackson. I wanted to let people know that last time when we talked about the bank war, your previous book, you said, if you have a chance to put Andrew Jackson in your book, I say, take it. And you took your own advice here for amiable scoundrel. So talk a little bit about his relationship with Andrew Jackson. Sure. Well, I think it's important that people realize that, again, Cameron emerges, you know, is born in 1799 and really comes into manhood just at a moment where the rules of politics are changing dramatically. You had seen the emergence of single party rule on the federal level in the United States following the election of 1800. And as a result, Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party really just sort of becomes this bloated, factionalized party that by the 1820s is clearly separating into Republicans with a more nationalist orientation who are sort of coalescing around John Quincy Adams and Republicans with a more democratic orientation who are sort of coalescing around Andrew Jackson. Now, the Jacksonians don't really have a program so much as they have a shared sense of grievances. And Cameron initially supports John Quincy Adams. In fact, in the election of 1824, he campaigns for Adams. Henry Clay becomes Adams' secretary of state and ultimately rewards Cameron and his partner with printing contracts. But it becomes clear by about 1826, 1827, that Pennsylvania is increasingly moving into the Jacksonian camp. And as a result, Cameron begins subtly at first and then overtly by about 1828 supporting Andrew Jackson. But again, the Jacksonians are this weird mashup of urban working class whites in the north and southern slaveholding elites. They don't actually have a whole lot in common other than shared enemies. And as a result, 
the, the Democratic Party is incredibly unstable. It's something that I explore in Bank War, but something we discussed last time. And during Jackson's presidency and really during Martin Van Buren's presidency, there's an attempt to sort of solidify the party, purge it of these people who don't really fit in. And there are a number of tests of party loyalty. One is the bank war. In Pennsylvania, things are a little bit different because the bank is headquartered there, because it's an industrializing state. And so Jackson finds Cameron a very useful lieutenant in the 1820s and 1830s when he's doing Jackson's bidding. When we get to the 1840s, and Cameron becomes a lieutenant for Polk's faction of the Democratic Party, Jackson finds him less useful and, in fact, calls his former ally a bankrupt in politics and morals. I mean, he just heeps all kind of abuse on Cameron. That doesn't sound like Andrew Jackson at all. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. Um, You know, and Polk thinks it's great until Cameron gets elected to the Senate, and it turns out that all of the issues that Polk had lied about during the campaign are issues that Cameron cared about very deeply. And Cameron proves himself to be a real thorn in Polk's side. And as a result, their friendship is not long for this world. But all of that being said, I want to emphasize the fact that Cameron's cardinal virtue throughout his life is loyalty. He is loyal to his friends. He is loyal to his political allies, You know, even as shabbily as Lincoln treats Cameron. Cameron is loyal to Lincoln. Now, there's more than a little political opportunism at work, but nevertheless, Cameron is an extremely loyal person, even to those people that he's personally friendly with, but might disagree politically. That's definitely something that comes across for me reading about him, and it's a great quality. It reminded me of kind of the reverse of what Nixon's advice was, or actually it carries out Nixon's advice where he says at the end of his career, those who hate you will never win unless you start hating them back and then you destroy yourself, which would have been good Mm -hmm. advice for him to get maybe 30 years earlier in his career because you can't be that focused on enemies when you're a guy like Cameron. If you want to unite all these factions, all these people, he's willing to be forgiving at times. He's extremely loyal to James Buchanan. They're both here coming from Pennsylvania and from the same little corner, yet he doesn't look at the guy necessarily right off the bat as a rival and say, I'm just going to hate him over some little slight, which is what somebody like an Andrew Jackson would do, which a lot of political figures do, where they just pick somebody and that's it. They focus on you and they just don't want to deal with you at all. And they just hate you. They can't even tell you why they're doing what they're doing. They do, though, eventually have a falling out sketch now Buchanan for us, because I want to focus for people that this is not just another Lincoln book. This is not just a guy who's a bit player here, and we're really just trying to wedge in another Abraham Lincoln story. This is a man in his own right with an incredible career. So tell us about his relationship with James Buchanan. You know, that's great. And if I can just riff on that before I get to Buchanan, I think in a lot of cases, people don't know who they are unless they define themselves by what they're against rather than what they're for. And I think that if you take anything away from Amiable Scoundrel, it's that Cameron was a full person. He was complicated. He was sometimes contradictory. He had good qualities. He had bad qualities. He was not the mustachioed villain that he's often made out to be. And at the same time, I'm not making an argument that he's a saint. He did a lot of really, really questionable things, even by the standards of the day. But I think that in writing a biography, you have to get beyond the stereotypes of good guys versus bad guys 
and sort of take people on their own terms in order to flesh them out as whole human beings. And so when someone reads the book, I certainly hope that's what they're getting. Now, as a segue into Buchanan, Cameron's relationship with Buchanan is very, very interesting. Buchanan was born in 1786. So he's only about 13 years older than Cameron. But in many ways, you know, when you read their correspondence, he's almost like a generation older. And there's a clear deference that Cameron pays to Buchanan well into middle age. You know, he's a friend. I think he considers himself a friend, but there's a clear hierarchy. And Buchanan is the superior and Cameron is the inferior. And Cameron hitches his political wagon to Buchanan, but works very, very hard, I think, you know, on the level of friendship, trying to get Buchanan elected, trying to further Buchanan's political career. And it's really not to the late 1830s when Cameron is middle age that he tries to start calling in those chits. And as long as he's working for Buchanan, Buchanan is very willing to take that. But when Cameron announces without consulting Buchanan that he's going to run to succeed Buchanan in the Senate in 1845, when Buchanan goes into Polk's cabinet, we begin to see fractures in their relationship. And even though they both end up opposing many of the Polk administration's policies, by the late 1840s, it's becoming increasingly clear that there are stresses in their relationship. And what finally is the tipping point is Buchanan goes out for the presidential election and Cameron manages his effort at the Democratic National Convention. And Buchanan doesn't get picked to be the Democratic candidate in 1848. And all of a sudden, there are these rumors that Cameron was involved in some sort of skullduggery, that Cameron was involved in some sort of back deal planning, that Cameron threw Buchanan under the bus. Now, there is no evidence to suggest that any of this had happened. And these rumors, interestingly enough, come from people who wanted to be in Cameron's position. They wanted to be Buchanan's lieutenant. They wanted to get in good with James Buchanan. Buchanan, for whatever reason, believes these rumors and ultimately ends his relationship with Cameron. Cameron is mortified when Buchanan doesn't support him for re-election of the Senate in 1849 and basically says, all right, well, our relationship's at an end. And things get really, really nasty in the mid-1850s to the point where Cameron actively tries to derail Buchanan becoming the 1852 Democratic nominee. When Buchanan becomes the Democratic nominee in 1856, Cameron has already migrated into the Republican Party. He gets reelected to the Senate in 1857 and in a lot of ways, out of spite, becomes sort of a thorn in Buchanan's side in the Senate. And at this point, they're mortal enemies. It's another reason why this Simon Cameron we meet in Amiable Scoundrel is a guy that you find yourself sitting up a little straighter and going, whoa, that's pretty smart and pretty nice, for lack of a better word, or pretty astute. We wish we were like that a little bit. At least I do. I see it and I say, that was not really bright of Buchanan to believe these things. You, We all wish we would go to that friend and say, hey, somebody told me you were saying something about me and I, I just want to know what went down. Just tell me what's going on. And we don't always do that as people, right? You're, somebody catches you at the wrong time or somebody you trust misleads you because of their own ends. I found that really interesting about Cameron. You'll list times where somebody who didn't back him 20 years ago. He doesn't hold that grudge. He'll say, okay, it works for me today to appoint you to a job and to help you out or help your widow out. And he does it. He's a, a generous guy of spirit. 
You know, and I, I would say generosity of spirit is certainly one of his characteristics. Again, he's a contradictory individual. There are instances where he does behave in vindictive ways. He does ruin people's careers because they've crossed him. But I would say in general, he's a pragmatist and he recognizes that today's political allies might be tomorrow's political enemies. That being said, you know, there are a lot of instances where there are people he disagrees with, but he's personally friendly with them. Jeff Davis is a great one. Jeff Davis goes on to become president of the Confederacy. And these guys disagreed with one another a lot, particularly in the overheated moment of the late 1850s in the Senate. You know, a bill came up in the Senate that Cameron planned on voting for, Jeff Davis planned on voting against, and Davis was sick. His wife was begging him, please don't go to the Senate, please don't go to the Senate. He said, I've got to go. It's going to be a close vote. They're going to need my vote. Verena Davis went to Cameron and said, look, please come to the House and, and try to talk some sense to him. And Cameron showed up and he said, look, how about I don't go to the Senate, you don't go to the Senate, your lack of negative vote will cancel out my lack of positive vote. And Davis agreed to that and went back to bed. And Cameron was pilloried in the hometown press for doing that. But he got up and said, look, this guy's a friend. Yes, I disagree with him, but it didn't change the outcome of the vote. And I'm not going to push a friend to do something that could injure his health just for politics. And, you know, I think that's a really striking illustration of Cameron's loyalty and his generosity, that he was willing to take some level of political heat in order to protect his friend's health even though there were political costs. We're speaking with Dr. Paul K. Han, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. You can learn more about today's guest at paulkahan.com or follow him at paul underscore kahan on Twitter. His name is spelled K-A-H-A-N. Harold Holzer is director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College and the author of Lincoln and the Power of the Press, which won the Gilder Lerman Lincoln Prize. He's also an author we featured on History in Five Friday. Mr. Holzer writes of Amiable Scoundrel, quote, This is a much-needed, cradle-to-grave biography of one of Lincoln's most important and most maligned early cabinet officers. Cahan peels away the stereotypes and myths to paint the kind of complex portrait this undyingly loyal Lincoln man deserves, unquote. I thought that that fit really well with where we're going with this interview because the idea of much maligned, it's something you want to balance. So it's not as if the book, as you said, is painting him as a saint. It's not as if I'm suddenly going to put a Cameron's for president sign on my front lawn, but you want to balance this a little bit. The guy is not a villain that he's been painted as. And a lot of this corruption in the period that leads eventually to the Gilded Age, by which time he's kind of just the sage you spoke about, but it's not related to him. This is something that was going on everywhere. You researched a lot of these things and you have these interesting anecdotes and things about him and also back them up with some quick facts. Things like actually Pennsylvania wasn't getting all of the commissions in the Union Army. They weren't being treated really well. He has a complex relationship with Lincoln. Lincoln was a guy that wasn't above just sitting back and not letting anyone know what he thought or telling you one thing and letting you think he agreed with you and then going to somebody else and saying, no, I don't agree with that Cameron guy at all. So talk about this idea that his tenure in office is so maligned for so long. What exactly were the charges people made against him? And what is the real story? 
it's important to set the stage. I mean, Cameron becomes Secretary of War in the days before the firing on Sumter. And he takes charge of a war department that oversees an army that's got only about 16,000 men in it, most of whom are in the West, sort of picking fights with Native Americans. His bureau has something like a few dozen employees. It's broken into these bureaus that are often overlapping, that are overseen by these totally aged and and infirm officers. This is not an organization that's ready to fight a war, certainly not a war of the complexity of the Civil War. And once you have the firing on Fort Sumter, Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops. You're talking about a nearly five-fold expansion in the number of people in uniform. You're talking about an agency that's going to have to swell exponentially overnight. And you have a guy whose skills are really in political deal-making rather than making sure the trains run on time. And so as a result, Cameron just throws money at things. He needs it fast, he needs it right, and he needs it as quickly as he can get a hold of it. And so as a result, there's a lot of duplication of effort, there's a lot of war profiteering, there's a lot of just really stupid decisions that get made in the heat of battle because no one had ever done anything like this before. And so as a result, you get a lot of really, really rushed decisions that lead to a lot of embarrassment. You know, at one point, Cameron hires a bunch of his cronies from Pennsylvania because they at least have some experience getting the railroads to run on time or procuring supplies or doing this stuff. And they buy these totally ridiculous uniforms because there just isn't enough uniform producing capacity in the United States. So the soldiers are going to go fight in white linen pants and red shirts and fezes and whatnot. I mean, it's just, it's totally absurd. And I think a lot of these very understandable mistakes get chalked up to malicious intent. They get chalked up to corruption because, of course, it fits a narrative. It fits a pre-existing narrative about Cameron's corruption and malfeasance and war profiteering, etc. But when you actually dig down into it, and the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War did, there's actually no evidence that Cameron behaved in a way that was intentionally corrupt or intentionally shady. There was a lot of hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done in the first year of the war. And there was a lot of improvisation taking place. And, you know, in fact, one of the great histories of the early part of the war is the improvised war. And, you know, Congress is not without blame in this. You know, Congress comes into special session in the summer of 1861 and demands that the Lincoln administration do something. And so the Lincoln administration sends the army out to meet the Confederates, and you have the disaster at Bull Run, where Cameron's brother is killed in the action. And I think it's a real wake-up call to the administration, but to the War Department in particular, that in a lot of ways, this is not going to be a short war, that systems are going to have to be put in place, procedures are going to have to be enacted that are going to allow a much smoother functioning. But Cameron's competing against the war governors. He's competing against the Confederacy for men and material. There's a real bottleneck in terms of railroads. All of the railroads in the north converge on Harrisburg and then go through Baltimore, which has very, very strong secessionist sentiment before then going on to D.C. There are a lot of geographical, economic, political factors weighing against Cameron that lead the War Department to sort of make these ad hoc decisions kind of shoot from the hip. 
And as a result, 1861 is a year of a lot of scandals, a lot of bad decision making. But by 1862, we begin to see the systemization of procurement. We begin to see the systemization of transportation. We begin to see the creation of policies that are going to make the War Department operate much more effectively. Now, of course, those policies take time to implement. And by the time they're fully implemented, Cameron has been forced out and Stanton really gets People the should remember that, what, a third of the army and the officers just has just left. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's an incredible brain drain. Yeah. I mean, a very heavy proportion of, you know, the elite soldiers, the professional soldiers get up and join the Confederacy. So there's a massive brain drain. You know, in a lot of ways, Cameron is left with a group that is not the best and the brightest. And he's trying to get a federal government that for years has been starved by the sort of Jacksonian paranoia about federal power to mobilize and impose its will on the states. It's something the federal government is expressly designed not to be able to do. And so he's swimming against the Constitution. He's swimming against precedent. He's swimming against politics. I think people should be more surprised at his successes rather than the fact that in the first year, it was a total, total catastrophe. And despite his lack of knowledge in military affairs, he does say early on that this war is not going to be over quickly. He has not an appointment at West Point, but an administrative role, I guess you'd say, at West Point. But he does have some foresight there. And that's something that if people have read a lot of Civil War books, you don't meet many people who said, hey, this war is going to take a long time. And yet he looks at that and he's sees, you know, this will not be the weekend at the park that everybody seems to be telling me it's going to be. So he's really trying to lay that groundwork. And he has some far-sighted policies. For instance, the idea of enlisting African-Americans. This is something that is very unpopular. I mean, Alexander Hamilton presents the idea to Washington. He doesn't want to do it. Like It's something that there's a really long, long resistance to. They also fear the South will fight harder if they think this is happening. That terrifies the mind of the Southerners. So you speak about this as something, I guess, we haven't heard before in history, that his relationships with people of African descent are not what we expect from having read other things. One man he hires is an escaped slave, Tom Chester. There's another man who's a Dutch citizen, I believe, of African descent, who really kind of starts berating Cameron over American slavery. And so tell us a little bit about his views on race. What were they at this time? Sure. So I think we need to create a distinction between his views on race and his views on slavery. When it comes to his views on race, he's surprisingly progressive. As you mentioned, he funds the education of an escaped slave that had come to work for him. Eventually, that slave goes on to be a fairly high up official. And I think the Liberian government, Tom Dasher at the War Department, he writes very warmly and says, God, I need your help. You've been here since the days of John C. Calhoun. I I need your help. Please stick around. So very, very progressive about issues of race. That being said, he is a conservative on the issue of slavery, by which I mean he doesn't like slavery. He sees it as a backward economic system, but he believes in the Constitution. And the Constitution is widely understood as prohibiting the federal government from interfering with slavery in the states where it already exists. What gets his goat is the fact that by the 1850s, he perceives the southern states as violating Pennsylvania's right 
to be a free state. He is appalled by the fugitive slave law. He says, look, the slave power, by which he means the southern states and their sympathizers in Congress, are violating our right to be a free state. We respect their right to be a slave state. Why are they trying to force us to use state resources to return fugitive slaves? If your slave escapes, that's your problem. You need to deal with it. Don't come to my state and violate my state's law. And I think this gets us back to another issue, which is Cameron always sees himself first last always as a Pennsylvanian. If Democrats are supporting Pennsylvania's interest rate, he's a Democrat. If the know-nothings are supporting Pennsylvania's interest rate, he's a know-nothing. If the Republicans are supporting Pennsylvania's interest, fine, he's a Republican. But he is always a Pennsylvanian. And I think that informs his attitude towards slavery. He does, you know, at various times say he abhors slavery, but he respects the constitutional rights of the Southern states to have slaves. Once they fire on the flag, all bets are off. And Cameron says, look, we've got to win this war. And the only way to win this war is by making it a total war. We've got to go after the South's economic system. And that means making this a war against slavery. And the best way to do that is to arm the escaped slaves who are coming to union lines. Because what we are ensuring is that we have one more person shooting at the South and we are depriving them of the workforce that's allowing their white males to pick up guns and shoot at us. And Lincoln is just incredibly resistant to this idea. And Cameron makes this point as early as April. He says, we got to do this. And Lincoln says, no, 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 no. The border states, we can't do this. What will the Kentuckians think? Cameron, I think, keeps these ideas quiet relatively. But by the fall, he's becoming increasingly vocal about this. And he makes this recommendation in his annual report to the president in December and has the temerity to send that annual report out to the press. And that's really where his days in the Lincoln administration become numbered, because Lincoln sees him as usurping a decision that should be left to the president, and at the same time, putting the White House in a really bad political situation. And that's the moment where Lincoln decides, all right, you got to go. On top of all these important issues that Simon Cameron is dealing with in his long career, really, I should say, woven into them, is how much politics in this era is like eighth grade in maybe any era. And that yeah, reminded me of you mentioned John C. Calhoun, whose name we hear in the news a lot, mostly because people are chiseling him off of buildings, trying to get rid of this guy. So you hear a little bit more about him and it reminds us of what went on then. And so Cameron gets to the Senate and even though he may have nothing in common with this guy and doesn't agree with him, he's a Southerner, you're from Pennsylvania, he's happy that he has the desk behind him, which I thought was which oh, I yeah. thought was kind of a- He is a lifelong admirer of John C. It's the strangest thing in the world. Like, he's in his 80s and some newspaper guy comes out and interviews him. And, and if you ever go to the Simon Cameron house in Harrisburg, it's set up exactly as it was. It's as if Simon Cameron locked the door wow. and walked out. His furniture's in there, his stuff. It's a pretty faithful representation of what it will look like when he was there. So he's talking to someone on the porch and he talks about how he's got this print of John C. Calhoun. Now, this is like 20 years after the war is over and Calhoun's secessionist doctrine has been widely discredited, but he still talks about how on some level he idolizes John C. Calhoun, even though he's appalled by secession. When South Carolina is dragged back into the Union, he sends a soldier down to South Carolina to plant trees in the main thoroughfare as sort of a screw you to the South Carolinians. But yeah, he gets to the Senate in the 1840s and he's just overjoyed that he sits behind (laughs) John C. Calhoun. And 40 years later, he's still got a print of him up in his office. So he's a 
he's an interesting Can you see one. that print still? Do they have that at the Harris Simon Cameron mansion? You know, it's funny that you should ask that. I've been there and I didn't think to look for it when I was in there. Some of his original stuff is there, but the house was left to one of the kids. I can't remember if it was Donald or one of his other sons. So not everything is the same and there have been some renovations, but I don't remember if it was in there or not. It is wall-to-wall, tchotchkes, knickknacks. It's exactly like you would imagine amid the late 19th century den. There's like, if there's a free wall space, he's got a print (laughs) hanging there. So I think you would probably need someone to catalog all of that before I could answer you definitively. And like any politician who's been in office for any length of time or even just run a campaign, there's even a sex scandal, allegations of a sex scandal against Cameron. And he's fairly advanced at that point. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this happens in the late 1870s. And it's important to remember, Cameron is pushing (laughs) 80 when this sex scandal breaks. There is a claim by this woman that he had promised to marry her and that she allowed him to take improper liberties, as I believe the way they describe it, with her. And this gets widely reported in the press because, of course, it fits a narrative. It's really negative about Cameron. His political enemies, you just see them rubbing their hands together. And it's sex. Everyone, like... One thing it doesn't change. Come on. Oh, my God. You know, and (laughs) and her story just becomes more and more outlandish. So then we get to the trial. There's an actual trial. And this is the moment where all of the press, which had been very, very favorable to the plaintiff, very quickly turns. I mean, the reporters have a chance to actually sit in the courtroom and just sort of listen to her on school. And it's clear that she's a total grifter. They read her letters to Cameron, and she had just been writing letter after letter after letter. She says at one point, well, if you won't give me money and you won't marry me, why don't you send me your son, who's an adult, who's mentally handicapped, to live with me so that I'll at least have a piece of you to care for? I mean, it just it's totally insane. Her roommate, who shows up to court in a veil and won't reveal her face, talks about how she had been planning this the whole time. She had pretended she was pregnant. Turns out she actually isn't pregnant. And, you know, you can just see Cameron sitting there in the court just smiling from ear to ear. Because every time this woman opens her mouth, she digs herself deeper and deeper and deeper. The jury leaves the room for a very short time and then comes back and finds him not guilty on all counts of taking advantage of her. And it's sort of like his vindication, because, of course, that gets reported in the press and she just doesn't let it go. She goes on the speaking tour that's designed to prove that, oh, no, 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 the court erred. I'm going to file an appeal. She just really embarrasses herself. But it's the thing that when I do author events, I tell everyone, and there's a sex scandal. (laughs) You know, I guess if you're sort of bent in the head, like the idea of this 78 year old man involved with this 38 year old woman is just too creepy to imagine. You write that while he was never afraid to use bare knuckle tactics against an opponent, he was willing to let bygones be bygones. I wonder if with a historian's eye, you sort of say to people who are writing future history books about him, is that time? Do you see people looking at your book? Are you getting responses from people that are fellow historians saying, wow, we have to let these bygones be bygones about Simon Cameron because so many of them are really built on sand? Well, you know, I certainly hope that's the case. The book came out July 1, and already it's gotten some pretty favorable reviews in sort of the mass market press. Harold Holzer is very nice. Oh, yeah. Harold Holzer was great. James McPherson gave a great bump. 
I haven't seen any reviews yet in the relevant journals, so I'll be interested in that. You know, I certainly hope it causes people to sort of rethink this and maybe inspires people to rethink what we think we know about other political figures. Because I do think that a lot of the people of this era are ripe for reinterpretation. There are so many sources that have become available in just the last five years. I mean, Scoundrel is really indebted to digitization of newspapers. I was able to put my hands on about 3,000 newspaper articles that mentioned Cameron throughout his life. And so I got a lot of information about him that I wouldn't have gotten had I just been using his papers or Lincoln's papers, etc. The digitization of old books. I'm talking about political memoirs, things I saw in Washington as a senator, really gave me fodder that had not been utilized in other books. And it sort of gave me the personal dimension. Alexander McClure's books, there's a guy who was a doorman at the White House. And I got great little vignettes that over time, if you add them all up, create a really nuanced portrait of Cameron. And I really think that other people of this era deserve the same treatment, deserve the same rethinking. Because one of the other things I think that my book does a nice job of doing is really nuancing our understanding of how politics in the 19th century worked. And I think that biographies of this sort really have something to tell us about political culture and why certain decisions were made at certain times, why other decisions weren't made. They can really nuance our understanding of the political process. So I hope it does sort of spur a larger And again, it's not a play. I think when we look back at the Civil War, it's very easy to look at it as an opera or a tragedy. And it has the music. It has a soundtrack built in with all that great songs that we still hear today and that we still play in marching bands. So it's really hard to recognize that fact and keep all our minds in it. I'm certainly not condescending to people. I'm not above this myself where you think, oh, right, that guy in a political cartoon and you just write him off. You know, I have one in my office that's a bunch of the Republican Party machine. One of my colleagues said one day, so this guy Quay, what's your beef with him? What's his problem? You know, like because he just happens to be one of the guys there. Pennsylvania's Quay, in fact, wasn't he? Yeah, and in fact, he becomes the leader of the Cameron political That's the thing, machine. to look into these people and meet them and see them at their worst and their best, but at least be seeing them accurately. I think that's an important thing, and Amiable Scoundrel certainly does that. I want to conclude our interview with your conclusion of the book. You quote the epitaph Cameron wrote for himself – which maybe was a case of not counting on all those enemies to write things about him. He decided he better write his own epitaph. He wrote, When I am gone, all I ask is that people may say that I did the best I could and was never untrue to a friend. So as the author of this book on Simon Cameron, I wanted to ask you if that's an accurate last word, and if you had been asked to write Cameron's epitaph, what would you have said? You know, I don't think I could do any better than he himself does. I think that if I were going to write an epitaph, I would say something like, he was a man, complicated, contradictory, a full human being, and not a mustachio-twirling villain. But I think he said it much more elegantly, and I think it gives us some insight into how he saw himself and what he wanted to be remembered for. 
So I, I don't think I can top his Well, words. Dr. Paul Cahan, author of Amiable Scoundrel, there's no topping the words in your book. I really enjoyed it. I was happy to get it. I nagged you a little bit for a copy. So thanks for finally sending it. And thank you for joining us today and shedding some light on this much maligned but fascinating figure. Best of luck with the book. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. Again, the book is Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate through that Amazon banner ad on our homepage for any of your purchases at amazon.com. Amazon gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make, and it doesn't cost anything extra. Once again... My thanks to Dr. Cahan for coming back on the show and for sharing the story of Abraham Lincoln's scandalous Secretary of War. I hope it came across that this is a lens we don't really get to view history through very often. Usually we focus on the big person, and we figure everyone else was just a cog in the Union Army machine. But Simon Cameron was right there in the thick of politics, and I think it's a great way to sort of know what went on in the 1800s by focusing on a figure like this. You can follow today's guest on Twitter at Paul underscore Cahan and visit his website, paulcahan.com. That's K-A-H-A-N. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or on our Facebook page. And speaking of our Facebook page, while you're there, check out the video we put together from Dr. Cahan's last visit with all those clever lithographs from the Jacksonian era illustrating the president's obsessive fight against his white whale. You can also enjoy our interview with Dr. Cahan about the book. You can also enjoy our interview about the bank war in our archives or wherever you're listening now. It was a spirited chat, and again, don't worry, very little math. I'm also looking forward to checking out the John Harris Simon Cameron Mansion, which celebrates its 250th anniversary this year, 2016. For information on paying them a visit yourself, go to DauphinCountyHistory.org slash museum. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Dr. Cahan was kind enough to do just that, and you can read his review and get an idea for the kind of thing people are saying about our little program. In the meantime, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.